Joe Biden has not been good. I know, I know, stop the presses, that's breaking news. <laughs> Joe Biden has not been good, and I mean really, really, really not good. And no, I'm not just talking about his physical and mental limitations. Clearly, we are dealing with a, an elderly individual who's not doing well. Let's set that aside. This is not what the show is about tonight. It has been disaster after disaster after disaster since this guy took office. And that's not just me, some far right winger saying that. Look, you've seen the recent poll numbers. Independents are saying that. The country is looking on in horror at how bad this presidency has been. And it has been really, really, really bad and in a really short amount of time. My word, imagine a few more years of this. So what is this biggest disaster? We thought we should do a show on let's go through them, let's rank them, I'll pick a winner. And my heart tells me this one might win, but we got a bunch of great guests on tonight, and I'm going to let them all make their case. And when I say my heart tells me this one might, might win, let's start with Afghanistan. This is not something I can let go. On top of the international embarrassment, our allies are mad at us, our enemies think we're weak and pathetic. On top of all that, Joe Biden is directly responsible for the death of 13 of our warriors. There's not a second way to look at this. There's not a second way. We got 13 of our warriors killed. We gave up Bagram without evacuating our civilians and then scrambled like a bunch of amateurs and said, ah, we'll just do it from the airport. Well, you can't properly secure an airport and we got 13 of our guys dead. And then, and then, in response to 13 of our guys being killed by Joe Biden's idiotic policies, we then turned around and incinerated a family of 10. And I can't let this go either because human life matters. Have you seen the pictures of that family of 10? I'm not going to put them up for you, but have you seen the pictures? There were adorable little kids in there. We drone striked an aid worker. And not only did the Biden administration drone strike an aid worker in response to our people being blown up, they initially leaked that they had hit ISIS. Remember that? I know they don't want you to remember that, but I remember that well. What? ISIS targets taken out. It was an aid worker who'd worked with us and a bunch of little kids. So, like I said, if we're going on my heart, I say that one might win. But, I mean, Joe Biden thinks it was a big success. No nation. No nation has ever done anything like it in all of history. The only the United States had the capacity and the will and ability to do it, and we did it today. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravely, and selfless courage of the United States. That's the president sounding like we just did something great. I'll tell you what. And look, he lied. His generals told him, hold on to Bagram. What are you talking about? What, do this right. He didn't. Then lied about that. And 13 of our guys are killed, plus the 10 we incinerated over there. But that's not the only scandal. You see, Joe Biden may have lied about Afghanistan, but dang if he didn't tell the truth about the border. 
What I would do as president is several more things, because things have changed. I would, in fact, make sure that there is, we immediately surge to the border. All those people are seeking asylum. They deserve to be heard. That's who we are. We're a nation that says if you want to flee and you're fleeing oppression, you should come. Once again, we don't watch when other world leaders speak. We don't. You don't. I don't. I talk politics for a living. An hour of TV every day, three hours of radio every single day. I couldn't tell you what Vladimir Putin's voice is. I mean, I've heard it, but I couldn't pick it out of nothing. I don't, I don't listen when he speaks. I don't care. Xi Jinping, Merkel, Macron, any of I don't know. They all know what the president says. The world watches. And they were all watching when the president said that during the debates. And so the second he got sworn in, they did exactly what he told them to do, and they surged the border. We are now a million already? Uh, We don't know the numbers. They're hiding them from us. A million illegals pouring in? You remember just recently it was 14,000 Haitians amassed on our border, and we let them in too? And now we're already getting word? from places in Central America that, ah, uh, hey guys, guess what? Um, since you let those 14,000 in, <clears throat> there are a lot more coming. There's already another gigantic caravan on the way. And there's simply not another way to look at the border situation than it being an intentional destruction of our country. There's no possible explanation for flooding a sovereign nation with illegal immigrants with no love or loyalty to this nation. And remember, this is the same administration who says things to you about coronavirus all the time. They're very, very worried about coronavirus. Coronavirus this and coronavirus that. And yet even they're having to admit the level of disease with these illegal illegal immigrants coming into the country, it's 20%. It's higher. We've got tuberculosis outbreaks, measles outbreaks. It's really, really bad. But that's Afghanistan. That's the border. Those things are critical. And they may be winners. Both of those may be winners as far as Joe Biden's biggest blunders go. The economy, though, that's the one you're feeling at the moment. I know you are, because I am. I was filled up my truck last night with gas, and I just sitting that took me a second and then it popped in oh that's why that final number when you're thinking okay ouch that hurt you're seeing it all over the place joe biden walks into office first thing oil and gas lease is gone keystone pipeline gone gas prices now through the roof you're seeing the massive printing of money unemployment benefits paying people not to work and not only is the debt problem bad They're trying to pass a gigantic bill and claiming the debt means nothing? We talk about price tags. It is zero price tag on the debt. We're paying. We're going to pay for everything we spend. So they say it's not, you know, people, understandably, well, you know, it started off at $6 trillion, now it's $3.5 trillion, now it's going going to be $2.9. It's going to be zero. Zero, because in, the, in that plan that I put forward, and I said from the outset, I said, I'm running to change the dynamic of how the economy grows. I'm tired of trickle down. The trillionaires and billionaires are doing very, very well. 
Never mind the disgusting communist class warfare thing there. And never mind the $3.5 trillion bill. When he says paid for, how sick is it? What he's talking about is it's paid for because I'm going to bleed the American taxpayer dry for $3.5 trillion to pay for all my goodies. And remember the great Thomas Sowell, what he had to say about trickle-down economics. There is a non-existent theory that is constantly being attacked. Uh, some years ago in my newspaper column, I challenged anybody to cite any economist outside of an insane asylum who had ever made that argument. Nobody ever, ever, ever came up with a single person. When I put this out, I went, went out in a nationally syndicated column. Uh, various people uh, wrote me and said, well, so-and-so said that so-and-so said it. But find me the person who said it. I don't want to hear how you, A said that B said Find me B and show me where he said it. And that was years ago. Not one example has been offered. Man, I love that guy. I love that guy. How great is that? So it's a laundry list of problems for Joe Biden. We're going to we're gonna tackle all of them tonight. We'll see who the winner is. Who is? What is the worst thing he's done? It's going to be a great show for you. Coming up next, Drew Berquist, our first contestant, talking about Afghanistan. Hang on. Joining me now, former counterterrorism agent and current host of This Is My Show with Drew Berquist. Drew Berquist. Drew, it's tough to sort out Joe Biden's worst disasters. You say it's Afghanistan. I don't know that I can argue with you, but make your case, sir. Well, thanks for having me, Jesse. Yeah, I mean, it is. Look, there's a lot to compete with here. But I think that Afghanistan is on a number of levels, right? First and foremost, this was something that I know we wanted to get out of, but as we've talked about even on your show, the way that it was done was so epically bad that none of us who've spent exhaustive time in that country could have ever come up with a scenario that looked this bad. So I think, I think it's a multitude of things, but first and foremost, you've abandoned and betrayed 20 years, two decades worth of warfighters who in some cases gave it all, but all of us and our families who've put so much into that um, to, to spit in the face of those people that were tasked by this government, by now him running this government, and the way that they did it was horrible. So you've done that, you've disenfranchised and disenchanted a lot of Americans and a lot of families who just support our warfighters in the, the veteran and intel community. So that's a, that's a big issue, but also what you've shown is you've shown weakness and ineptitude, and it's killing our relationships around the world. We've got allies who are talking openly as well as behind our backs talking about what happened to America. What happened to this country that we could rely on and lean on who has essentially said, no, we're just going to hand the keys to, to a terrorist organization, not just one, but several, in fact. We're going to give them more, weapon, more weapons, more territory, more money, more power and authority than they've ever had before, and we're going to legitimize them on top and claim that we have leverage when, in fact, we don't, because if we did, and we could, certainly, we would have done something and we would have done it all different than this. So it's killing, it's killing us there, and then on top of it, it's making us, our partners, both abroad and here at home, less safe. Drew, why? Why is this happening? Because it seems like this is part two of the Obama presidency where he came in and he pretty much gave the proverbial middle finger to all of our allies and extended a hand to all of our enemies. Why? What am I missing? 
Well, look, it's by design. The Obama administration, the one thing that I saw just perpetuate over his eight years, and I served under all eight of his years overseas, mostly in Afghanistan, some in Iraq, and the, 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 the difference with him versus so many other leaders that we've had in our country, look, we've had some good ones, we've had some bad ones, is that administration, and we're seeing it now in, in what a lot of would call his third term with Joe Biden, is they are ashamed of America. They always set up these deals that they say are in, in the best interest of our people, our country back home, when in fact we see that it's case in point, you don't have to look hard or far to see every time that we get screwed in these deals, other people, usually nefarious actors, come out on top, look at Iran under Obama, look at so many other places under Obama, and now you see everyone here too, and it's because they're ashamed of America. They don't actually love America. They'll say, oh, we love our troops, and God bless the troops, and God bless this country, but it's a country that all their policies, time and time again, show they are trying to destroy. So we can say this was a blunder, and it was, and we can say this shouldn't have happened, and it shouldn't have, but it all seems to be very purposeful based on these people and their track records. Drew, you've talked about this before on the show, but a lot of people, they don't understand fully. To be honest, I don't understand fully Pakistan. Pa why is Pakistan so intimately connected to Afghanistan? Why is Pakistan so important, and why are they nutso? Well, they're very nutso, and we're nutso for giving them so much money, billions, over, over such a long period of time, and we've given that money to a, a power that we're trying to say, hey, there and there are, look, there's good people everywhere, right? And there's some good people in the Pakistani government. But what we're trying to do is keep the peace there with, with the region, with as volatile as it is, of course, with them in India and Kashmir. We've got you know Afghanistan, where we've been heavily involved for decades upon decades now. We've got Iran on the other side of that. So it's a volatile region. We want to keep the peace there. We want to keep them in check. But the problem is, is we never really have. They've just used and abused us. We've given them tons of money, which they've turned around and given to Haqqani and other nefarious actors to then go literally kill us. We're literally paying them to cut us out at the knees in Afghanistan and kill our service members and our allies. So it's made no sense, but we've always been scared to, to call them out on the carpet and say, you know what, we're just gonna stop doing this until you stop doing what you're doing. And, and as a result, we have lost, they've won. Now the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, Al-Qaeda, ISIS-K, and probably a dozen other groups uh, have all won in this process. China's won in this process. But the, the one thing that remains true is that America lost. Okay, why, when it comes to Pakistan, why have they been able to abuse us so badly? I mean, is nobody who, is, are all the people setting the policy aware they're being abused? I, what, what are we scared of if we tell Pakistan, nope, no more, until you start acting right? What are we scared of? Well, I don't know if it's because they're a nuclear power, you know, and, and we're scared that they're going to leverage that and say, okay, well, big brother, America's not watching us, which... You know, again, we're watching them, but we're not doing anything. So, are we really watching them? Is 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 the question at hand? But I, I don't. You know, there's that, and again, the the instability that they sow in the region. I think we want to feel as though, and policymakers want to feel as though, hey, we're doing something to keep them happy, keep them on our side. They do give us stuff in return, whether it's you know airspace, whether it's access to this, whether it's our embassies and different operations in the region, what have you. But again, we lose every time. And yes, the policymakers know about this. Yes, leadership at the different agencies know about this. They can see, I mean, the, the amount of reporting that just I know of and was a part of, which is just a, a pinprick, uh, you know, being one person who served over there that documents in, in, in channels, in official channels, what they're doing with this money, how this is going, how they've, how they've, 
used and abused us, used and abused our funds and resources. It's, it's absolutely insane. So someone's making out somewhere on our side who it is and why it is is TBD, but everyone is aware, and yet we continue to play the same dangerous game. Drew, can you explain what Afghanistan is going to look like, or at least make a prediction on what it's going to look like in, okay, let's call it five years. Maybe it's a year, maybe it's a month. Clearly, Taliban, they're going to be fighting with the Northern Alliance, but that's not going very well. But then when they're all done with that, you still have a bunch of tribes that are not exactly going to sign up. You have ISIS, you have Al-Qaeda. What does this place look like in five years? Well, I think it's going to look tribal like it always has, right? This has always been a very tribal country. It's always been a country with conflict. So you're going to continue to see that. It's just going to escalate because, again, you're not going to have a government that can bring stability. And that's not to say that Afghanistan's been the, uh, the, the poster child for stability over the years. It, it obviously hasn't been. But you're going to have all these tribes. You're going to have infighting, which we're already seeing. You're seeing the Haqqani Taliban fight the Taliban who's in Kabul and, and, and quote-unquote in power. You're seeing the Kandahari Taliban who's upset with the way that the Haqqanis and some of the folks in Kabul are doing business. So they're, they're fractured and splintered right there, yet they still have the same goal of, of going after the West, in, you know, instilling Sharia law and all of, all of this which is happening and going on now. But it's going to be lots of infighting. It's going to be lots of battling. And I think you're going to see some some quote unquote progress, you know, on infrastructure and stuff like that, because China is going to get in there. They already are, are involved indirectly through Pakistan, somewhat directly through Kabul. And, and their goal, of course, is to protect their border to the north. Their goal is to get, you know, the, the, the lithium and to get the, the rare earth minerals out of there. And what's going to be interesting to see is whether it's all out chaos, just war and a huge safe haven for terror, which again, it already is right now, or whether the Chinese come in and other outside, outside countries and say, You've got to slow down on that a little bit. You've got to keep some of this in check. We're not, we don't expect you to keep it all in check um, because we want to be safe and we want to get what we want out and maintain some credibility. But the bottom line is this chaos is what you're going to see. Violence is what you're going to see. The videos that I see from people on the ground already on a daily basis are shocking and disturbing. And I think we can expect a lot more of that in the years to come. Drew. Is China going to be the one running things in that place for real, or are they just going to kind of suck out of there whatever they can as far as minerals and, and things goes? I think it's more of the latter. I think that it's going to appear they're going to try to be, hey, we're someone who can come in, you can count on us, we, you, we're going to help you. But really what it is is what they do all over the globe. They, they go in, they abuse people, get what they need in return, and back out. Again, I don't think they're going to care about tamping down on extremism too much in the region other than the parts where they are with the efforts that they're doing again extracting these minerals getting what they need out of it sure maybe they'll do some infrastructure in return but it's not going to be like hey we're going to come in and nor should anyone we're going to come in and nation build we're going to come in and help govern like we did for the last two decades it's not going to look like that but they are make make no doubt about it they're going to get out of that country what they want out of it and they're going to try to make us bad uh, look bad along the way Drew, thank you so much, my man. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll be back. Who's the winner? Uh, look, it's a long list of scandals and disasters for Joe Biden, but I've got to say... 
I like Charles Marino's subject here because I think he might end up being the winner in the clubhouse. He is the former Homeland Security Department advisor and former Secret Service special agent. Gosh, that's cool. I wish I could call myself a special agent. Charles, what's Joe Biden's worst disaster? Jesse, hands down, it is the border. It is the most immediate threat to our national security and it's gonna impact everything. It's gonna impact local communities. It's gonna impact the economy in terms of having to support all of these migrants that are being let into the country. Let's look at the numbers. 1.5 million encounters so far this year. Let's bring that up to 2 million conservatively if you include the getaways. The amount of stress that this is gonna put on our local communities in terms of public safety, health and medical, you name it, schooling. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And then again, back to our national security, the big question is, who are these people that we're letting in? Uh, who are these people, Charles? Because look, uh, when you when you talk to these border patrol guys, which obviously is something you do often, my buddies tell me it's not, it's not just Haiti. You know, it's it's not it's not Guatemala. It's 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 all over the world they're coming through there, and I mean all over the world. And nobody seems to be able to assess who these people are because there are ones who do want to get caught, and then there are ones who very much do not. And there's a lot of those getting through too. Yeah, the numbers are 30%, again, conservatively, are coming from around the world. That means that they're coming from locations not including Mexico and Central America. We've seen this with Haiti. Um, they've relocated to Latin America, Central America years ago. And now the word is out. There's no deterrent for our borders. The word's out, it's open borders. Now is the time to come. So you have, for in the example of Haiti, you have these migrants that have relocated years ago, now making their try to get into the United States. And because there's no deterrent, it is not gonna stop. So if we look at from day one of this administration, how this country has been threatened most immediately, it is most certainly hands down the border crisis. Charles, uh, uh, the Haiti thing, I think, look, there's been so many disasters and scandals that we don't have time to dwell enough on each one, but it really is staggering to me that 14,000 people can amass on the border of a nation and we just let them in. So of course there's gonna be another one. We already have word there's 20,000 more coming. Why wouldn't they? The last 14,000 just waltzed into the country. What, this is not sustainable. Where are we putting these people, by the way? Yeah, we're sneaking them into communities around the country, unbeknownst to local uh, elected officials and local citizens in those communities, um, which is disingenuous and dangerous uh, at most. But what we have here is we have an overall failure of policy with no overarching strategy from day one. And what this has caused is it's placed the citizens here in this country in danger, and it's also endangered those people that are making this dangerous trek. Let's not forget the humanitarian crisis, what happens during this journey. We're talking about rapes of women, abuse of children, people dying, they're coming through very dangerous terrain, and all of the money, by the way, based on our policies, is funding the cartels. They have made billions of dollars since this crisis has begun based on our policies. So here we are supporting a transnational criminal organization who's sneaking people into our country for purposes we just don't know. 
Charles, how am I supposed to take this as anything other than intentional? I mean, a failure of policy, you call it. This looks intentional. I mean, you have to you have to intentionally screw up this bad to let this many people inside your borders. No, it is intentional. I mean, let's look at how the administration is turning on CBP uh, based on their actions down in Del Rio. Listen, it's not like they don't like the just the optics of what they saw, you know, with the CBP officers on horses. They just don't like the optics of the border being enforced at all. So this is purposeful. Uh, for what reason? I don't know. There are some guesses about it, maybe to turn the electoral map upside down, possibly. But this is nothing good for our national security. This is the way we got beat pre-9-11. We got beat through our immigration and visa programs. And we're setting ourselves up for fa failure shortly after the 20th anniversary of September 11th. Charles, can you give me, before we get to the economic stuff, which I'll get to in a second, can you give me some window into the life of, say, one of these Haitians? All right, they get in here, they get turned loose. I understand oftentimes they get taken to a charity of some kind and then dropped at a hotel or something. And then, of course, they disperse. Most likely they're going to find some Haitian community here and do what? They can get jobs, apparently? Yeah, they can get jobs. They're in here while they're awaiting. They're given a notice to appear, which the majority of which, as we know, never show up for their immigration hearings. So they're here for the long haul. And as long as the administration doesn't make their removal a priority, i.e. if they're here and don't commit crimes, they're never going to be removed by ICE. So ICE has been significantly limited in what they could do by the administration. So nobody's getting deported. You know, that overarching number, 2 million people, only 3% are being deported under Title 42, which is only a CDC mechanism. So imagine if we didn't have a pandemic right now, Jesse, nobody would be getting removed. Charles, explain what Title 42 is again. Yeah, so Title 42 is what was implemented uh, by the CDC to help counter the spread from outside the United States of COVID-19. And what we're seeing that is we're not seeing Title 42 being applied consistently by the administration. The most that are being impacted by Title 42 are single adult males. But if you come in as part of a family package, um, and they're not even testing for COVID-19. None of those Haitian migrants that came into Del Rio were tested for COVID protocols. And that's based on, on the word of the Secretary of Homeland Security. So they've put that Title 42, they've put the pandemic on the back burner. They're only using it really in a few cases, 3% of the cases for single males and they're turning them around. So the single males, what are they doing? If CBP is surging to areas like Del Rio, they're beating the system by going further down uh, on the border where there are no resources there to stop them. Golly. All right, Charles, you brought it up earlier. People don't talk enough about the economic impact of flooding your country with illegal immigrants. Would you elaborate on that, please? So the left will argue that, listen, the migrants that we're letting into the country while they're awaiting their illegal uh, immigration hearings, that they're spending money in that is in no way going to offset the amount of money that the government is going to spend through schooling, through health care, um, you name it, through emergency services, through social services, through things like welfare, food stamps, right? And they're also, let's forget, 
they're not forget they're also sending the majority of money that they earn outside of the United States to family that have remained in places like Mexico and Central America. So the money that they make is not flooding the economy as some would lead us to believe. And we are spending far more than we are taking in. Charles, people don't talk enough about, you brought it up, the impact of schools and hospitals. These hospitals, especially hospitals along the border, I used to witness it. I used to live down there. The ERs would be full because illegals simply use the ERs as their family doctor. And and people don't talk about the burden on these hospitals who don't get paid. That's right. No, that's right. I mean, emergency rooms become become the de facto primary care physicians for these illegal migrants, and we pay the bill for that. They have no health care. They usually don't have enough money uh, to cover even showing up a $150 fee or, or more to even be seen before you get diagnosed. So this just puts a big strain on our communities here. Um, and let's talk about policing. You know, we're also going to see a rise in local crime. We're going to see additional stress on law enforcement agencies that many of the big cities that these people are going to go to are also trying to defund their police departments at the same time while they're dealing with the immigration search. And one consistent factor, Jesse, they're all Democrats. Charles Marino. Charles, thank you so much, my man. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Good to see you, Jesse. We have the great Carol Roth next. She has her own scandal she thinks is number one. Hang on. There's been a lot of disasters during the past eight, nine months. I know the disaster number one happens to be in the White House, and there seems to be some disagreement on the right over exactly which is his biggest disaster. So joining me now, obviously she's well-known on this show, author of The War on Small Business, my friend Carol Roth joins me. Carol, what is Joe Biden's biggest disaster in your opinion? So obviously it's always all about the money and Joe Biden is the biggest economic disaster that we have seen in a very long time. Now I am a fair individual, Jesse, if nothing else, I think you would agree with that. So he did walk in to a bad situation and he had this opportunity to turn things around because the vaccine was coming out. People's bank accounts were doing pretty well. There were a ton of jobs available. And what does this genius do? He doubles down on bad policy. Amidst all of this, the first thing that they do is the American Rescue Plan, almost $2 trillion in additional spending, going to cronies, throwing out Biden bucks so he can say he gave you back your own money. Uh, But most people don't realize that. So that puts a lot of additional money and pressure on prices in the economy. He extended the unemployment benefit situation that was set to expire last March, increased or excuse me, extended the unemployment bonuses, that incremental $300 on top of traditional unemployment to keep people out of the workforce. And the outcome of all of this is the stuff that we're paying for every day. We don't have enough people to fill the jobs in the labor market. There are almost 11 million jobs unfilled. The supply chain is entirely messed up. There's an increase in prices. So people are paying more and getting less. 
and for the poor and for the middle class, inflation is a tax that nobody talks about. On top of that, think about things like gas prices going up. Well, this genius in the White House came in. What's the first things that he, he does? He cancels the leases on uh, oil, cancels oil and gas leases, decides that we're not going to continue to build a pipeline. And the worst part is that the scariest financial policies are yet to come. Trillions and trillions of, of additional dollars that are moving us further away from free markets towards socialism. So that is the biggest blunder. Uh, we're going to get to the future in a moment, but you said he inherited a bad situation. Sure. We don't pull punches on this show. Correct. What is the bad situation specifically he inherited it, and why did he inherit it? So from the last administration, Congress and the Federal Reserve 2020 saw the most historic transfer of wealth from Main Street to Wall Street in history. It shut down smaller businesses and let that revenue go to bigger businesses. It pumped trillions of dollars into the market to prop up big businesses. It allowed for interest rates to stay artificially depressed. And so if you were a retiree or a saver, you were earning um, next to nothing on your money, but big companies were able to borrow cheaply and go out and compete not only with other businesses in the market, but with individuals to purchase homes and the like. And this was all the roots of creating um, not only this wealth transfer, but the pressure that is coming out um, in inflation. So, you know, he, he did inherit that. That happened before he walked in. Um, but again, he, he could have stopped that. He could have said, okay, well, now we're going to return to normal, but chose not to do that. All right, Carol, since, as long as you're sitting here scaring the pants off of everybody, what's coming? You mentioned what's coming because it ain't great right now. What's coming? So we have trillions and trillions of additional spending that we are being told is quote unquote paid for. Of course, none of this is paid for. They're making the assumptions that they will be able to raise taxes and that that won't have economic impacts. They're doing things like uh, tricks in terms of timing. So they're saying this is the 10 year cost, but they're you're phasing in a program maybe a few years later or bringing some of it on later or only doing it for two years and then you're gonna have to vote for it for the other eight years. So they're doing all kinds of, of tricks. And these are all things that encourage big government and big special interests and take away the economic freedom from the individual and will make it more difficult for individuals to create and hold on to wealth. And so that is what's coming. Um, obviously, we're already seeing the effects, as I said, in inflation in terms of taxes. They want to double down. They want to spend more. They want to in the way that they see fit, and the way that they see fit is going to benefit the people who are inside of the club and not the average American, even though they sell it the other way. Carol, inflation. I, I yes. know we talk about this a lot, but shoot, I got it from my wife yesterday. Got back from She got back from the grocery store. She's like, well, I don't understand. Why, why is everything costing so much more? And you think that's going to continue to get worse. Why? What does that have to do with interest rates? Right. So basically, 
Uh, there's this, all this interconnection in terms of the money that has been printed and the money that has been transferred from the government out of nowhere into people's pockets. You know, this is money that they're making up that is a future debt that we have to pay. And putting all of this money into the system, chasing the same amount of goods and services, or in our case, sometimes fewer goods and services, because again, we have these supply chain problems, so people can't manufacture the same level of goods or, or have the, the same number of people working to, to have the same output, that creates price inflation. And it's done in one of two ways. It's either direct price inflation, so you're paying more for the same thing, or they do something called shrinkflation, where you're buying a box of cereal and it looks the same, but when you open it up, like only half the box is filled, and then you look at the outside and you realize, oh, they've actually cut the amount that's in the box. So you're still getting less with the amount of dollars that you have. And again, that's a tax on the poor and the middle class because they're the ones who are spending. The asset value price, or the prices of assets um, keep going up in value. So if you're somebody who is an investor who has access to cheap debt for investing and has a lot of hard assets and is going to continue to buy assets, those are going to increase in value. So you're not having the same level of bad outcomes, even though this does impact everyone, it just impacts them in a different way. So rich people are going to get richer during an economic downturn and poor and middle class people are going to see their standard of living lower. Do I have that about right? Absolutely. As I said, this is all about central planning is about being in the club. If you are in the club and who's in the club, the people in the power circle, the people who have money, they are going to end up making out very well and the people who aren't will not. And unfortunately, that is not economic freedom. That is not the American dream. And they are just absolutely killing it. Carol, are there people in Washington, D.C., anybody, anybody who, who seems to understand finances? I mean, there certainly are a handful of people, um, but they are few and far between. And unfortunately, everybody's coming at this as sort of a, a party, you know, a partisan matter. If I just got my guy in charge, or if I just got my gal in charge, this who's going to fix it. But this really is a systemic issue. We have seen an explosion in spending and the types of things that have been shifted to the government purview over the last you know, several decades. And so it's not something that's going to be fixed just by getting one person in there. The system is rotten and the system needs to be overhauled. How do we overhaul it, Carol? Because it doesn't seem possible right about now. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, I'm, I'm following your lead, Jess. You're supposed to have the answers to this, right? You start global, the balkanization. Um, you know, maybe you get to the point where you have a convention of the states and they say we need to take back, uh, you know, some of our purview. I, I think the first thing is people educated about the Federal Reserve, who's been a huge piece of this, because not only, as I said, are they disrupting risk in the market and, and facilitating this transfer, but they're enabling the bad government spending. When the government overspends, right, who do they think is going to be there to go out in the market and buy the debt that they issue? It's not like other countries have all this money. It's not like, you know, the investors are, are like clamoring to get their hands on U.S. government bond. The Federal Reserve has been in the market buying them. They're monetizing the debt. So if we got rid of that problem, maybe put some pressure 
that could start it, but this is a huge, huge issue. And unfortunately, once we go over that cliff, there's no coming back. So we've got to stop it now. Carol Roth, thank you so much. Wait, did I win? You won. You won. Okay. Yes, you did good, Carol. Okay, you did good. That's all I was doing to please you and win. And maybe could I get like a balloon out of it or something? You killed it. We'll get you a balloon with my face on it, Carol. It'll be the best gift ever. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We'll be back. Well, that was a whole lot of blunder. <laughs> I mean... That's a lot of blunder to squeeze in your first nine months as president, but somehow Joe Biden has pulled it off. So what is the winner? I told you at the very beginning of the show, my heart would say Afghanistan. I understand I'm very, very biased there. I, I, I can't get those 13 warriors out of my mind. They're dead. They're dead because of Joe Biden. So I want to say Afghanistan, but the real truth is the biggest blunder is the one we can't even feel fully yet. The biggest blunder is the economy. It's the economy. And I know that's not the sexy one, right? It's easy to talk about the illegal immigrants in Afghanistan and all that. But you've never been part of a crashed economy. I've never been part of a crashed economy. I, I don't know. I can't tell you what it's like. I only know what I read about in the history books. I watch documentaries about it. And the way people describe how their entire life changed is scary. And we're heading there. And we're heading there really, really, really fast. And the Biden administration seems to want to get us there tomorrow. So the biggest blunder right now is Joe Biden's economy. And I hope I don't turn out to be right. But whew, when has that ever happened? All right. It's been a great special. I'll see you.